Welcome to the Auckland Bioengineering Institute podcast. Um, so, uh, good afternoon, I'm, I'm David yeah. Bucket, and we're, we're here to talk about success. And I think um, one of the cool things was, in Peter's introduction, he explained that, in fact, 80% of our graduates will not be in academia, but we're doing other things. And it might be in our startups, it might be in established industries, etc. But most of us won't be in academia. So success in and beyond academia is a pretty important topic for this audience. And I think um, with, with Bruce we had that notion that he felt that his academic pathway was, was perhaps simpler than the academic pathway available to many people here. And I guess what he's alluding to there is there was this, well you do a PhD and after your PhD, well, after your PhD you're going to do a postdoc and then you're going to be a lecturer and then you sort of progress along that scale. Whereas nowadays it's probably a bit more complicated than that. There's a lot more options available. And what we've got in front of us is, is a group of people who are practicing success, who are creating success. And we really get great to get their perspective. The basic format is uh, each person is going to introduce themselves for about five minutes or so. And then there's a series of questions. And um, hopefully most of those questions are coming from you guys. That's what these guys are anticipating. That's what they're expecting. Um, I've, 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 I'm under instruction, so I've got two questions I need to present first. But that gives you time to think about your own questions. Um, so without further ado, perhaps, Marin, you're probably better known here compared to most people. So perhaps you can give an introduction to yourself in three minutes instead of five minutes. <laughs> I think three minutes is quite long, actually. Um, and I'd say Tim's probably better well known than me. Yeah, everyone knows Tim. Uh, so I'm Marin Tafai, uh, currently Deputy Director at ABI, uh, lead the or co-lead the uh, lung research group. Um, bit of historical background you saw a little bit this morning with uh, Peter's and Kelly's presentations. I've been around for a very long time. I've only been at the University of Auckland, I know nowhere else. Uh, did my undergrad, master's, PhD uh, in Auckland. Uh, Peter was my master's and PhD supervisor. He's uh, still and my boss. Peter's the only boss I've ever had. <laughs> ah. <laughs> Not bad. Um, and we still get along okay. Uh, so I had uh, my first child during my undergraduate degree, not highly recommended. Um, I had my second uh, towards the end of my PhD, slightly more recommended, but uh, yeah, so that was part of the reason for me staying at the University of Auckland and staying in academia. Um, so I have not had a lectureship, I have had been on a research track uh, supporting myself and my group through research funding and then taking on various uh, sort of leadership and, and uh, administration roles. Uh, some of you, I mean the students probably haven't heard of performance-based research funding, but our staff certainly have. Um, so I was the university's academic lead for that project for a number of years, so that gave me some exposure to uh, the wider university, how things work, and all of the fantastic research that goes on in the faculties and the other research institute. Um, yes, that's enough. Thank you. Tim, do you want to give us some background? 
All right, thank you. That's a tough act to follow. Um, so I have been at the ABI now 10 years. I started a PhD here originally, um, did a PhD under the supervision of originally Andrew Pullen. Um, he passed away, unfortunately, partway through my PhD, and uh, I was supervised by Leo Cheng and Ian Bissett in the Department of Surgery. Uh, and then after my PhD, I've stayed on as uh, a research fellow and am now a senior research fellow um, with the GI group um, and working on developing a bit more independence on my own and starting to um, lead my own research grants and, and fellowships. Um, before le uh, joining the ABI, I did a bachelor's and a master's degree at the University of Michigan in the United States where I'm from. Um, so I think that's uh, interesting or helpful to me because it brings a bit of a different experience to um, some of the people um, within the ABI. Um, so that's been good for me. And then most recently, um, I guess in my academic professional journey, I was very fortunate to be supported for two years as a postdoc on the MedTech Corps under a flagship led by Leo and uh, Professor John Windsor in surgery. Uh, and then I leveraged that into an AMRF fellowship for two years, uh, so funded by the Auckland Medical Research Foundation. Um, and most recently uh, was successful with the Rutherford Discovery Fellowship, which I started beginning of last year and goes for five years. Uh, and then I'm also running an HRC Emerging Researcher First Grant at the moment and um, am in negotiations or finalizing a National Science Challenge subcontract as well. Um, so those are, I guess, the projects uh, that I'm working on. Um, beside that, I, I sit on the AMRF Medical Committee as well. Um, so that's been quite uh, interesting to um, start to see research from that side of the table. Cool. Uh, Does that work? Hello? Cool. Um, hi, everyone. Uh, so my name's uh, Reese. I started off doing BME at Auckland University. Uh, and then went through and did a PhD after that um, under Andrew Tabner and Paul as well as my co-supervisor. Uh, and then through that I got the opportunity to uh, do a bit of work over at M MIT for a few months and then went back and visited. And the focus of my PhD was on uh, jet injection of drugs. And I presume there's still projects going on there. <laughs> um, and uh, that, that was like a, an awesome time uh, and like an intense time as well, especially near the end. Um, but like, I think I learned so much through that process and that really fed into my career afterwards. So after my PhD, I moved into industry and went to Fisher and Pago Healthcare and worked on algorithms there for a couple of years. And then um, an opportunity came up to join a recently bought out startup called I Measure You. Uh, and what we do is we um, attach uh, inertial measurement units to mainly elite sports people and then and we put them on the legs, kind of down here by the ankles, and, and we use the data from that to give feedback to the sports people about like how they're performing and the level of impact that they're putting their legs under, um, with a particular focus on basketball. So you imagine in basketball, you kind of have really tall um, people when they're like hitting a very hard surface, and, and that puts them under a lot of um, susceptibility to injury. And so uh, we try and give as much feedback from these units in a non-invasive way that helps them get back from injury and then prevent re-injury as well. Uh, so I'm a data scientist there and we uh, kind of have a bunch of data and we have to like sort it out and we use different techniques, machine learning techniques, signal processing techniques to try and build that all. And I've found that as I've gone on, I've just gone deeper and deeper into software and less on the hardware side. Um, I don't really have any like, because uh, we're quite a small company, we have like one manager and then that's kind of it. 
Um, so a lot of my leadership experiences come from things I do in my spare time, which is working on environmental issues and political work um, in Auckland and throughout the country. So, yeah, Hi everyone, can you hear me? Uh, my name is Marco Schneider. You might have seen me around here hanging on level eight at the ABI. So um, my journey, my story kind of goes, I did an undergrad at the University of Auckland and um, I was originally doing it in science and then I realized that um, I was missing out on mathematics and that mathematics was really fun. I really missed that component of science um, in the pure sciences. And so I converted to biomedical engineering and did an undergrad um, here and after I got exposed to research quite early on with the summer studentships. Um, so I had one with VJ Roger Gopal, who's no longer here. Uh, he's, I think he's in Melbourne now. And, um, and then I got involved in the Pathway Project, and the degree was just so much fun. And then I got another STEM studentship with Paul Nielsen. And um, then when I graduated, I did a PhD uh, with uh, Tor Bezier and Paul Nielsen. And, um, Kumar Mithrarapne and so that was a really interesting experience um, I got to travel to the US quite a lot because we had collaborators there at Brown University and Stanford University and got to be exposed to the um, international environment and uh, different perspectives on how research is done um, and when I comp while, during my PhD um, Tony and I we had a kind of a crazy idea and we decided to pursue a startup. And so we've been involved with a startup called Vivify um, from 2015. Um, it was officially incorporated like two years later because we were doing our PhD so we didn't really have any time to work on the startup um, very much. But basically in the first couple of years we developed um, a augmented reality device that was based on a cell phone. And so back then that was relatively novel because you, you couldn't really do it at all. Um, so we just thought, oh, if you take like the Google Cardboard and then you added some mirror reflectors and change the tracking algorithm, then you could like create a low cost augmented reality hardware. So we built one, it's super clunky, like this big box that you attach to your head. And um, with that, we managed to get some funding. Um, and so this was always a side project for us. And um, along the way, we uh, there's lots of obstacles in in, in startup world, and um, so we're we're actually thinking of throwing in the towel about two years, uh, two three years ago, and then we uh, got uh, Auckland Inventors Fund. <laughs> so then we decided, oh great, we can actually pay ourselves for doing this work. I finished my PhDs, I had more time, and I started working more on the startup um, with Tony. Tony, uh, he was still carrying on with his PhD. Um, but then we quickly realized that if you pay yourselves to do work, um, that the runway shortens quite a lot. So you should probably hold on to that money. Um, so Tony's now, he, he submitted and defended his thesis and he just needs to hand in his corrections. Um, and so we're up to the stage where we're, um, able to have Tony work uh, more on the startup and we're, we've, over the last two years we had a lot of success with um, getting the product out there, getting recognized um, 
uh, buy cinemas and tr trying to do business development and gauging interest and so on. And I guess it's a bit of a roller coaster ride, but we recently, um, it's, it's a roller coaster ride. So it's always up and it's down, um, but that's where I'm at at the moment. So I was lucky enough to, for Tor Bezier to give me a part-time research fellowship. And so I was able to continue funding myself while working kind of both in research and a little bit dabbling in the startup world. So that's kind of my story. Marco, you described success or getting the product out there, or getting, getting feedback on that. And you know, everyone's got quite different um, experiences and different career pathways and different stages, etc. And so one of the, one of the sort of initial questions is what does success mean for each of you? We would anticipate quite a different answer. So, so what, what's your measure at the moment of success? So success is um, going out there and achieving some kind of set task that you've set for yourself. I think that's a pretty common um, definition for success. But I think you should caveat that with enjoying it as well. So because there's that internal feeling of success. And if you just complete some menial task, you're not going to feel successful. So for me, it's about making sure that I'm continually moving forward, I'm learning. I'm st if I feel like I'm stagnant, I'm, I have no nothing else to gain, then I won't feel very successful. So for us, with a startup, it, um, you know, having external recognition was also really important to feeling successful. So when we got a grant or when we were featured in some kind of um, news when people were interested in talking to us, that kind of was external feedback that we were doing okay. Um, and obviously getting the product out, getting people try it, collecting feedback, and then having some kind of, um, obviously they always have something to say that you need to improve the product, but the, the feedback that, um, that we're heading in the right direction, and that's very important. Just feeling that you're moving forward and you're not just stuck where you are. I, sure. I think that's important. And so, Reese, as part of sort of an established entity, um, what, what do you see as, as success from your perspective, your ability to generate that success within your organisation? Yeah, I guess because I don't have to go out and put it out there all the time and not building from the ground up, I, I, I would define success and what I do is like seeing people use it and then like gaining uh, some benefit from the use of the product. So I found that um, kind of in the academic world there was this like level of abstraction to it all and that it, as you're building the like proving concepts and that kind of thing, you're not necessarily seeing someone use it directly in front of you. And I think the, my desire to like see someone use what I was producing and making led me more towards this kind of applied um, industry role within a company. So like at the moment we might develop a, um, like an algorithm or something and then a, a basketball player will go use it and then we'll get immediate feedback on how it presented, how the, what the player thought about the metric that we had developed, what the coach thought, this kind of thing. And I think we really focus on like getting that really quick feedback loop because otherwise um, we can't actually iterate quick enough to be competitive and also if having that quick feedback loop knows that we're making something that's actually useful to people. And so I, yeah, I really gain and perceive success as making something that's um, you know, beneficial to people in general. Yeah. So Mirren, as, as a senior academic, your measures of success 
could be related to sort of how the university is performing or how the ABI is able to perform in the, in, in the university. But how, how do you see success now as a senior academic? Um, well, I was going to say, but you've kind of jumped in there, <laughs> that um, my view of success, I suppose, has changed a lot through my academic career. So you start out, you know, how many papers am I publishing? How much grant money am I getting? How many PhD students am I supervising? Don't spoil it, Tim, now. It's Tim. Yeah, it's Tim. Yeah, sorry, sorry, Tim. Um, <laughs> Uh, and but then as time goes on and you know and you and you're applying for promotion, Tim again, um, you know you, you go through all of these things, but then um, what you define as success does change. And I think now for me it's like it, it is what you say. It's not it's not just about what is my research group doing, but it's about enabling others to be successful, and that can be behind the scenes um, with ABI, the MedTech Core, um, or or with the university. So, so Tim, have you got anything to add to what Miriam is telling you about? <laughs> I, I feel like she already covered what I'm supposed to be doing to be successful. <laughs> um, I guess, yeah, I guess I would just reiterate that. I still define all of those parameters. I think it's a pretty clear message from the university and academia in general that papers are really important, grant funding's really important, um, supervising students and contributing in those areas and contributing back to the ABI and the university is really important. Um, yeah, so I, I definitely look at that. I, I chronically check my Google Scholar page, I will admit to that, embarrassingly so. But, um, but I, think some, I think that stuff's important um, in what we do. It's actually really important. I was just finishing a round of grant revisions for the AMRF, and one of the first things I do when I pull up a grant is copy-paste the PI's name into Google Scholar and see what it shows me about them because you can learn a lot about that person that you may not know um, from what some of those, some of those, I guess, quantitative metrics say. Um, but I think we sort of got a prompt before this panel about how we define success, and two things came to my mind beyond that, because um, I think that's sort of the, what the university wants us to do. Um, but to me, I think there's two things I focus on, and one is I ask myself every day or every week or however, however frequently, is am I still learning? Because that's ultimately what I, why I chose to stay in academia, why I chose to get a PhD, why I chose to do research is I, I still really enjoy learning. So if I'm still learning, whether I'm successful in those metrics or not, then I, I consider that a success. Um, I just finished writing a grant proposal and I got a lot of feedback and I learned a lot through that process. So whether or not that's makes it through to the next round. I feel like I've already had a bit of success from that. Um, I'll still be gutted if it gets rejected, but um, like that's a, I think that's important. So am I learning? That's a real metric of success. And the other one that comes to mind, I guess, is to reiterate what Marin said as well, is um, contributing to the people around you. And I sort of thought, um, when I was given that prompt of what is my favorite Maori whakatoki, which says, heaha te nui o te ao, he tangata, he tangata, he tangata. What is the most important thing in the world? It's the people, it's people, it's people. And I think that really rings true to me. It was nice seeing it today from Peter's initial introduction. Bruce reiterated it. We've got a really good group at the ABI, a really collegial group. It's what's kept me here for so long, admittedly. Um, it's why I still love coming to work every day. And so that's really a metric of success too, is am I contributing to the people around me? Um, yeah, am I, am I valued in that way? Am I, am I doing well? So I think you know, Peter and Bruce raised that. As a, as a critical part of the success of the ABI, the collegiality, 
and, and you've just expressed that you're totally committed that that is part of, of the success. So I'm, I'm kind of interested from, from you guys, you've kind of experienced that. Is that collegiality something which still impacts what you do now? How important is it to what you do now? Or is it sort of kind of a special thing for the ABI? Yeah, I mean, I think you can't really build something without having a bunch of people around you to support you in doing that and contribute towards the project. And I think coming from undergrad, my first experience was that, of that was in the instrumentation layer. And so that's where you start building that kind of collegial mindset and that fully translates into how you can work in a company because that's the only way that anything can get made is with everyone contributing their bit and making sure that it's all good to go. Yeah. And I wonder whether that culture is something we do carry forward. And I guess I find when I'm interacting with different companies, some of those companies have that culture and some of them really don't, they're quite defensive and, and it's really quite difficult to break down those barriers. Perhaps that's part of the benefit of the ABI is sort of carrying that culture forward into, into relationships, your business relationships. That you yeah, especially if like, because if, I've been, I've experienced people that are very close about their work and everything and it's, it's, it's a loss for them and a loss for you because you can't access and share information together and that's the only way at which you can like kind of get ahead. So, yeah. So it's like very important. Yeah. And so, Marco, you're sort of networking and interaction with others. Is that sort of part of what you can carry forward? Absolute key. So, if you're not out there networking and um, interacting well with people, then you're just shutting doors, and opportunities would never happen. So, um, all of the any success that we've had with Vivify has purely been um, because of the people that we've met along the way and they've opened up doors for us. And without ha having not met those people, we would have thrown in the towel years ago. So. And so, Marin, do you feel that the collegiality in the ABI is under threat more today than it was when the ABI was first formed? Do you think the pressures are different, or do you think that it's, 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 it's going to continue as, as, as we have enjoyed it? I don't think it's the collegiality per se that's under threat, but I think it, you know it's it's a bit sad that I look around the room and there are faces here that I swear I've never seen, and and that's that's a shame, you know. And the, but that's what happens with growth. Um, so more opportunities for us to find out about each other and what everybody is doing. Um, I, th I think that. The nice thing is that a number of us have been around for such a long time, I'm looking at you too, um, that, <laughs> that um, the, you know, we feel that that collegiality is entrenched in ABI and we all understand how important it is and so we're going to keep on promoting this, you know, that, that, it's, um, that there's not a high turnover of some people so I think that we can you know, we, we're going to have to make efforts and maybe be a bit creative. Um, but I think that that's... And where we, you might feel as, oh, no, we're really, really busy, we've got all these mm -hmm. deliverables, we've been measured on everything, and we've just got to concentrate on that. The reality is it's always been like that. Everyone's always been really yeah. busy, and it's, it's just yeah. part of the culture. 
That's right. Everybody has different pressures at different times of their career, but um, but I think like today, you know, that the uh, the people I've spoken with, there's potential for several research projects. You know, looking at different things that are happening across ABI, and and I know that I can approach my colleagues and hopefully drum up some enthusiasm uh, amongst others. And and I think everybody knows that around ABI, it's not a you know, you look at um, big departments um, in universities overseas and, and there can be competition there between people, you know, not sharing knowledge, not collaborating. Um, and that's really sad and we don't have those same barriers at ABI, so that's a real power uh, for us. And perhaps that's one of the benefits that we're trying to introduce in the MedTech core is mm. sort of spreading that culture sort of throughout the country where yeah. all the academic partners are, are yeah. also willing to share and really just yeah. communicate. Absolutely, and for those who don't know, the MedTech Core is one of the 10 New Zealand centres of research excellence, um, and this one in medical technologies, it involves six partners, five universities and Callaghan Innovation. Um, so through the core, um, one, of, one of the missions of CORE is to increase collaboration across New Zealand in specific areas of um, strategic importance for the country. Um, so our core is very strong on collaboration. We uh, make sure that that runs right throughout the core and throughout all of our research projects. Um, and, and you're right, I think it is just spreading what ABI has already done so well um, to others across New Zealand. Um, and and it's, I think that, that's part of the reason that our core has been so successful is people's willingness to work together. So, so guys, we've got four individuals with quite different experience, quite different sort of career positions, but all based upon this common bioengineering capability and this culture of collegiality. What, what questions do you want to put to them? Who's got to run around the microphone? I, I get to go first and ask the difficult question. All great people, David, successful in their own right, but I'd like to ask if you could identify some things that were things that didn't go right. It, you know, you wished you'd done that, wished you'd taken an opportunity, you didn't, or you did try something and it didn't work. Because often we learn not only by the good things that we've done, but things that didn't quite go to plan in our and, and, careers and, and things. Again, it's sort of part of the culture, from, from my perspective, having, having known Peter for quite a while, he never has failures. <laughs> when, when something doesn't turn out, it's just a setback. <laughs> and he's got to have another strategy for how to achieve it all uh, changes. But he doesn't have failures as such. But um, it's, it's an excellent point that you know, our learnings from our challenges or our failures and what we do about them. Have you got examples of what's happened? I guess I have the microphone, so I'm thrown under the bus. <laughs> but I might flip it around a little bit um, and tell a bit of an anecdote, I guess, about what has been my most successful publication. So it was a paper um, that I wrote the first year of my PhD with a lot of co-authors in the GI group. It was a really multidisciplinary project, um, a clinical project. We had some great human clinical data from international partners. Um, and we packaged it up. I, I spent a year on it, 
I spent a year on it. And looking back, I don't know if I would recommend that people spend a year on one paper when they're a first year postdoc or not. <laughs> so that may be a failure in a sense. Um, but we backed it, we were really proud of it. We submitted it to a journal, and I guess I'll be fully open and transparent, uh, Science Translational Medicine, and they rejected it at the editorial level. Um, so we turned around and said, oh, that's fine. Um, they're idiots. Uh, so we submitted it to GUT, which is the second most prestigious journal in our field, clinical journal. Uh, their editor rejected it. Um, so at that point we said, oh, maybe we're the idiots here. Um, <laughs> But we sort of had a bit of a hooey amongst ourselves and we said, no, we, we really believe in this. We still haven't had a crack at getting, a, getting it um, reviewed. So we submitted it to Gastroenterology, which is the number one journal in the field. It's actually higher impact factor than any of the other two we had previously submitted to and got rejected from. And we ultimately got it accepted there. Um, we had to do pretty major revisions and pulled in another collaborator to get some additional data. But um, that's become a like really my career defining publication. And so it was a long road to get there and I could look back at any point, like I wasn't feeling really good about myself when I was, had spent eight months in a postdoc and hadn't published a paper yet. Um, so I guess that was a bit of a story about, that turned out pretty well, yeah. Mary, tell us something about something that went wrong. Something that turned into something fantastic. I honestly can't think of anything like that. <laughs> oh, well, I mean, ac accidentally getting pregnant and then she's turned out pretty nice. That's, um, there's that one. I haven't been there. I can't think of anything research-wise that um, has ended up a dud. I think everything we've managed to persist with and build upon. Um, the team might correct me if I'm wrong, but I can't think of anything off the top of my head. Um, for me, you know, in terms of mistakes or doing things wrong, um, I think in hindsight, being more direct, demanding, loud, um, self-promoting, um, you know, that I think that's what I would have what I would have done differently. Okay, I've got like two examples to maybe share. So one is like, we might try a different approach. We were looking at this like model-based design approach and I was kind of pushing that within the company and it's it like was going okay and then it, it, it was kind of revealed that it was kind of taking too much time. Like we were getting feedback that it was like not um, delivering what we wanted um, quickly enough. And so, I mean, I think if you have that feedback loop pretty short, then you get pretty quick feedback that you need to change what you're doing. And so nothing like catastrophically fails, but you kind of see that, oh, that thing that I thought might help actually might be a hindrance. And um, I guess the other example I have is um, I was part of this group to organise a bunch of people to go and talk to the MPs for a political thing. And we went from maybe eight volunteers to 160 all of a sudden, and uh, we basically just couldn't scale. Like, we didn't know how to, we didn't have expertise, we didn't have people who had done that kind of thing before, and we ended up just not being able to support those people to do that. Um, but I think when you, uh, you know, you could see it as a failure because we didn't meet our goals and that kind of thing. But I learned so much from that process of how to like work, work with people more closely and how to 
build a kind of um, adaptive structure of um, responding to people and, and working on a project together that, yeah, like you just got to take them as learning opportunities and move forward. Yeah. Um, the example I can think of is when we were running um, our pilot trials at the cinemas. And when we first started, we didn't really trust the reliability of our system very much. So we didn't want to just leave it there. Um, so we would schedule people to come in and try the device. And the first person who ever tried our device, it didn't work. And so they're sitting in the cinema, they're hearing impaired, so they can't actually hear the dialogue from the movie anyway. And um, they were just sitting there and they didn't know what to do. And so they eventually came out of the cinema and told the staff. And um, luckily we were, we were sitting nearby and so we you know, troubleshooted the system, but it took us maybe an hour to get it going. And so the person missed out an hour of the film. <laughs> so the only, um, the only redeeming thing there was we paid them to watch the film, so. <laughs> um, but we learned a lot about what's wrong with our system. And over the next few weeks, we learned even more about everything that was wrong with the system. Like sometimes when people were singing, like the subtitles would show random symbols that weren't anything to do with the dialogue or the, this, the, it was like synchronized wrong or whatever. So we, we had to deal with all the problems. And so at the start it was a little bit, you know, um, and also at, at really early on we, we tried to charge um, pilot trailers to use the um, system. And we quickly learned that we should just offer it for free and let people try it, learn as much as we can from them, and then adapt the system. And we got to the stage we could leave the system uh, for months and it just runs in the background doesn't fail, no problems, no issues at all. So the, um, the customer's always right, and you should always take these opportunities to try and solve all the problems and use the feedback to improve your system. Drew, welcome to the panel. Sorry I didn't um, give you an opportunity to talk about successes earlier, really, but if you can give us a couple of minutes introduction and tell us about your failures. Yeah. <laughs> well, there was that one time I agreed to be on a panel. <laughs> Um, yeah, sorry for the lateness. Um, so I, along with a few other co-founders here, founded Formus Labs. We develop software for orthopedic uh, pre-op planning, so helping surgeons um, get an idea of what the anatomy they're going into is and what size implants they should use. Um, and it's, it's really built on the um, shoulders a lot of work that's done here around musculoskeletal modeling and packaging that up into something a clinician finds useful and something that an orthopedic company may pay you money for as well. Um, so that's the story. Uh, in terms of failures, um, well, I guess as some of you guys already said, when you put a product, a prototype out into the market in the first, for the first time, things are bound to go wrong, you know, predictions aren't on point, the, the implant size you suggested is obviously too big because it's blowing up through the 3D model of the bone. Um, but I guess it's, you, just, you just have to go through that and you have to persevere and you have to work with your customers, work with your users. 
um, and you know, be on hand to troubleshoot and sometimes work through the night to fix the problem um, because you're, you're trying to get your customers or your, cust uh, your users uh, approval and their buy-in on the product. Um, another thing that felt like you know, a nightmare at the time, anytime you go and try to raise investment, <laughs> I guess especially your first time, you know, you, you're pitching to investors um, and they're looking for a million ways to turn you down and you're trying to line up all the um, dots to make them say yes and you know invariably you're gonna and they're always friendly to you right you know they're, they're trying to get good deals to invest in um, and so they're always really excited up front and then you inevitably hit the no and you know it's like being a teenager again any small thing seems like the end of the world um, but if you have a good um, team behind you, advisors, then you push on and um, you get there, or you get somewhere in the end. Um, yeah. So one of the common themes appears to be it's quite beneficial if you fail small, because you've got the opportunity to, to iterate and go again, that leads to success. Where if you don't get that user feedback or the early investor feedback or the product validation feedback or, or the paper reviewer's feedback, then potentially you can to much bigger failure later on, so considerations for that. Yeah. Um, so Simon's now lost the microphone, but I'm sure he'd be pleased for me to talk about one of our failures. We, we had um, a, a successful, just one, but we had a successful telemetry business that made telemeters to put inside laboratory rats. It was so good we thought, hey, we should promote this for putting into all sorts of large animals. We can do large animals as well as rats. We had people putting them in giraffes and fish and racing camels and in eagles and the support nightmare because everyone has something incredibly weird and specific to do. It was a complete disaster. So we had all these unhappy customers following on from the very successful product to do in rats. We did the right thing. We, we killed those puppies and put it back into rats and it was all fine. But uh, it was uh, getting that feedback from the customers. We have a question of the farm. <laughs> <laughs> um, this question is Jagir as a member of the Equity and Diversity Committee. And I read this title more than what it should have been. So I heard about ABI, I heard about the university. I heard about industry. I didn't hear about family. I didn't hear about immediate impact on the community. The second one is an observation, and this is with, uh, probably Meran can help me with this one. With respect, you made certain comments about pregnancy and women having kids as they progress during career. It probably shouldn't come across as something that's stifling them to progress or take up a career in science. How do you think we should redefine success so that it's more appealing or inviting for women to be more than participants? Um, it's
it's kind of, I mean, it, it's hard to answer something like that because I can only answer from my own perspective and everything else is an assumption and I don't want to just, you know, assume that every woman's experience is the same as mine because, of course, it isn't. Um, I think it's interesting that in um, my team of women who have gone on to be successful in their own right, um, particularly Alice Clark, Kelly Burrows, um, you know, with, between us we have quite a number of children, um, and the, yeah, so, and, and I would not say, I mean, you, you've seen Kelly's workload, both at home and um, at ABI, and she still juggles all of that, and it is always juggling. Um, whether you are a mother or an involved father, so I don't want to undersell the role of fathers in parenthood as well. So if you are making equal contribution, regardless of your sex or gender, then of course it's still a juggle for you. Um, so yeah, I mean I touched on this last year in terms of uh, being welcoming uh, of unintended conversations or unintended consequences from conversations, um, you know, making people perhaps not feel part of the group and it's through no, no deliberate, you know, moves on anybody's part. It's just being aware, you know, that um, the conversations you have or the, you know, we're, we're heading off down to the pub but somebody else has got to go home and pick, or pick the kids up from daycare and head home and can never join everybody at the pub but that's your only place that you do your socialising. Uh, perhaps ditto for Friday drinks. I know they're really popular and it's great and I'm not suggesting that they change but just um, that perhaps some of the people who are, are never in attendance have family commitments so you know they don't get to experience um, that sort of mechanism for encouraging collegiality um, that the rest of you get to enjoy. Um, so, I mean, I, my experience with ABI, like I said, I've, that's the only place that I have been. My experience is that there has been no impediment to my career uh, because of uh, my gender. I've certainly had a lot of opportunities. Um, a lot of that's because of Peter uh, and uh, other senior colleagues who um, open doors and don't really care. You know, that you, you're a person and you're a scientist first and foremost and it's up to you to make the most of it. Um, I would say that we have enough uh, senior and emerging senior women now in the Institute that if any of the younger women have concerns or just want to chat, um, we are certainly happy to, um, to sit down with you and, and encourage you and pass on our experiences. Got like a little bit to add. I know when I was doing my PhD, I had like a real sense of like kind of imposter syndrome, like I like wasn't supposed to be there and and wasn't um, like at the level of like standard that I needed to be to get the PhD, especially like as it kind of dragged on a bit longer than I expected. And so I think that like it should prompt you to think about how you define your personal success. And it doesn't have to be like in academia, it doesn't have to be in industry. Um, you have to think about what you want to gain from your life and, what, and how you want to have an impact or how, how you want to like, be involved and in what you want to achieve and that kind of thing. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's a really good point to have a broader perspective on what that is and then do a bit of introspection and discover what it is for you because um, we're all kind of talking about what ours is 
and it might be kind of um, focused on a particular area of like, I don't know, industry or academia, but that's because of what we're passionate about, I imagine. And you can be passionate about your family, you can be passionate about politics, changing the world, you know, lots of things, and it's about just figuring that out for yourself. Yep. So, so given a couple of comments, one on the issue of failure. Um, I think all academics get used to repeated failure early in their careers. I mean, you don't survive if you don't figure out how to accept failure, and whether it's failure of grant applications because you know you know that only twenty percent at most of your grant applications are going to be successful. So inevitably, you. You know, for every 10 you put in as a young researcher, nine are going to get turned down. You know that papers get turned down. You know, you get severe reviews that really leave you very demoralised. But I, I remember, <clears throat> to, it seems obvious in retrospect, but it wasn't obvious to me at the time that I remember talking to Andrew Huxley, who's, who's a very famous um, physiologist in the UK, who... Um, when I was talking to him about this, he said some of his best work, and, and what made me think of this was Tim's comment, because he said much of his best work has always been turned down, and that's what you would expect if what you're trying to do is completely new. Challenging. You're challenging. So you should expect to be, in fact, both for papers and for grants, to have to fight. So that the key thing is your ability to have confidence in what you believe in and what you think and to keep fighting for it. And that's, that's absolutely a key part of academia, I think. But the other, the other comment I wanted to make was one thing that we have in the ABI now that we didn't have um, 10, 20 years ago that I think is a huge improvement, in fact, in the ABI. You know, we think about all the, the challenges of growing and, and dealing with knowing people in such a big community, but the one thing that I think probably now makes the ABI the most, is the most desirable feature of the ABI is the multicultural environment we have, and that's quite new. So I think we really need to appreciate and, and really figure out ways of taking advantage of an extremely multicultural um, environment that we have here. That sort of concept of being able to measure success in different ways is certainly very real. And I guess on a, on a personal front, I, what I can see is a whole lot of people who are passionate about what they do and actually want to go to work. They want to do that stuff, along with all their other commitments, etc. But it's still kind of an enjoyable thing to do. Other questions? Greg, go ahead. Uh, yeah, so this sort of follows on from Peter's comment um, about being able to deal with setbacks. But because a lot of the people here are fairly young researchers, what would you as a panel say were one or two of the skills that you think it is really important to master as early on in your career as you can in order to be able to work towards success? Sorry, Tim, you're closest to the microphone. Okay. Um, talking, writing, and dealing with failure. Those are the three. 
So I think a lot of, if I look back, a lot of my success, and I think it mirrors what um, Reese and others have said and Marco, that is that um, being able to interact with people and talk to people on a personal level, um, being able to give presentations when you have an opportunity, all of that ends up setting up networks that um, oftentimes lead to big successes. And I think Marin um, talked quite a bit about that in relation to the MedTech core and others as well. Uh, writing, I think, is really important. Um, at the end, if you're a PhD student, you have to write about a 200 to 300 page document. Um, so it's worth spending some time really working on writing. It's really integral to academia in general. Um, and I think a lot of times, uh, yeah, that's something where, where it really pays dividends. Um, and then, what was the last thing I said? Oh, dealing with failure. So I heard one of the, I think, best pieces of advice I received um, is from a professor at School of Medicine, and he said, you should expect uh, every time you submit a paper that the first submission is a rejection. And he said, if you're not consistently getting rejected on your first submission, then you're not aiming high enough. And I think that was a really good piece of advice, um, is actually, in that case, expect to fail. Um, and if you're not failing, you can probably get a bit more out of yourself. You're probably underselling yourself. I thought that was really good um, to have that mindset. So what you're doing to there, Timothy, communication skills. And I think if you, if you contrast when we first started doing three-minute thesis presentations compared to what's happening or happened today, the quality of us to communicate is just ramping up and that's principally due to practice, and that's fantastic. So it, it, it's a tough thing to do to get out there and do that. And if you've only got three minutes, gee, you've got to be organized. But it comes with practice, and it's really fantastic to see how that has progressed. Mira, another key skills. Well, I, I was just going to back up just a little bit here and, and touch back on when I said about um, not having failures or... You know, things that didn't work out. Of course, I've had plenty of papers rejected and plenty of grants rejected, or I'd be rolling in it. Um, and but I haven't, I didn't define those as failures. And so, just to be clear, it certainly has still happened uh, to us. I just take that. That's just matter of fact. That is just what we've chosen a career where rejection is what we experience on a daily basis. Um, so I think that in terms of. Um, and, and <laughs> depends how many papers you submit. Um, so Mahir should be feeling really good about now because we just had our fantastic paper rejected from the top journal in our field. So clearly we're pushing the boundaries. Um, so yeah, I, I absolutely support what Tim is saying. You know, it's uh, writing and getting things written up is key early on in your career. It's probably ironic for many of you who are engineers and thought that would be a career where you didn't have to write so much, um, but writing is really important. There is no point doing your research if you are not going to put it out for peer review and share it with the world. Um, so you need to be able to finish what you're doing don't move on to something else before you've finished what you have been working on. And finishing means you need to write it up and send it out for publication. Um, you know, so some people will disagree that the university's sort of metrics and the way that promotion works, you know, is should we be counted for the number of papers we have? Well, whether it's right or wrong, it's the currency that's used. Um, and 
You know, if you're publishing really good papers in top quality journals, you're doing something right. And so as a young person starting your career, really think about why am I doing the research I'm doing? How is it going to end up being published? So Reese, as a skilled engineer, how important is communication in what you do? Yeah, it's paramount, I think. Um, if we didn't talk to one another in the company, then we wouldn't get anything done. Um, so I think communication would be one of my first things, um, both at all the different scales of it as well. So if you can't explain what you're doing to a customer, then you're not going to be as closely committed to them. It's not going to be a successful product. If you can't explain to other engineers how it works, then you're not like opening yourself up to enough scrutiny and it's not going to be as good an algorithm or as good a product. So yeah, you need to be explaining what you're doing all the time and doing it in a way at which the other person actually understands what you're saying and not um, on a level that like is so technically complex that uh, they can't actually interpret what is going on. Uh, so thinking about different levels of communication is really key as well. And then the other thing I would mention in terms of um, skills to have uh, would be being really open when something hasn't gone as you expected it to go. Um, I think I struggled with that a bit during my PhD was like, oh, I did this experiment and oh, yeah, I didn't think about that, so that might have affected it in this way. But like just being really upfront about that can really help you get through issues quicker and then actually you end up with something that does what you want it to do. But you need to kind of communicate that to people and, and like exhibit that kind of transparency on what's gone wrong and what's gone right. I think um, what's really good about a PhD is that it conditions you for failure and uncertainty. And so one of the top skills that you get when you're out and done with your PhD is that you're comfortable with failure. You can go into that interview and absolutely nail it. You might not get the job, but um, you, you're, you're okay to look for the next one or look for the next opportunity and continue. Um, and I think it also um, teaches you to be open to, uh, to failure. And if, I'm, I'm just trying to think of like, when, when your product isn't working well, for example, um, you need to be open and listening to what the customers are saying so that you can you know, tune the pro product to their note. Uh, in terms of research skills though, um, because I still dabble a little bit in research, by the way. <laughs> uh, I think it's important to um, try and plant as many seeds as you can. And when I say that, I mean in terms of collaborations. So, um, and making sure that you're disseminating your research. So writing papers, um, talking to different people about your research, going to conferences, actually making use of those conferences and talking to people you don't normally talk to. Um, and setting up your research gate profile, things like that. That's really useful because I've had um, multiple collaborators reach out to me on ResearchGate and check your emails because I didn't check my emails for a long time and I almost missed those opportunities. So um, if, they, if, you, if I didn't set up the ResearchGate profile, they would have never reached out to me and then I would have not had those collaborations. So it's really about, you know, um, taking advantage of the chaos and um, 
you know, writing those papers. So, Jude, in terms of sort of skill sets which these guys could or sh would be helpful for them to focus on and perhaps be representative in what they could pitch to you to, to help you and to, for, to make them attractive for formers lab to take them on, etc. We've had various skill sets about communications and, and, and other skills and perseverance. Are there other aspects which you would like to see for, from our graduates? Um, yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, I will just say again that communication is really important and how you communicate because there's nothing worse than me going into a design or code review and the person presenting their work dives straight into the nitty-gritty details and I have no context as what's going on and I immediately switch off and if I'm really busy, then I get annoyed as I, like, I don't know what's going on. So tailoring your communication to your audience, knowing who your audience is first, at what level, if it's a technical, at what level of technicality, can you, should you explain that to the person? I think that's, that's really important because that could make or break your pitch if you're pitching something to, to someone. Um, and I think, I mean, we, we write code, we write a lot of code. Um, and I guess this is maybe a bit niche, but um, you know, just as it's important to have your research critiqued, having your code critiqued by other people I think is really important, especially if you're looking to write more code and develop software in the future, because code written by someone on their own is uh, not usually code that a company will want to use because it's esoteric, only one person understands it, no one else in the team knows what's going on. So, I mean, one thing I felt I was probably a good thing I did, and it was something encouraged by my supervisor, Dwayne Malcolm at the time, is when I started my PhD, the code I was writing, I put it into a library that I put onto Bitbucket or, from, or GitHub these days, I guess you would put it on, and it just became an open source piece of software there, and it meant that I could reuse my code, and I was forced to document it and write documentation for it, write tutorials for it, and then that got picked up by other research groups, and it got folded into other projects, and I still field emails from people who somehow found, found the code on, online and, and want to run the tutorial and use my code. And not only does that build your network, and people you know, can find something useful out of the work you did, but it also just improves your skills and not only writing code, but um, you know, technical communication. It, it's another form of output in addition to papers you might write. Um, and I think you know, now there are journals for open source software specifically. So, I mean, I, even though it may not fit into KPIs, I, if, if you can put out an open source library and you have people using it, um, I think that's a really important piece of output as well. So how many people are just writing code to solve their own problem compared to writing code to solve their problem and enable other people to use their code or enable their code to be part of some sort of um, regulatory oversight or regulatory submission type process? There are different layers and levels, aren't there? And how does that impact on your CV if you can demonstrate some of those things? We've still got time for another question. One other question we would like. We've got the microphone. Um, yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> I was just going to say I 
completely agree with what you said earlier, Reese, about defining your own um, success, I guess, but we all run into this difficulty that to progress in your career in life, you have to meet other people's definitions of success. Um, and I was just kind of thinking about that trade-off. I mean, Miriam's touched on it a little bit with academics not getting too cynical about what can feel like ticking boxes with papers and stuff, but I was just wondering, having done a PhD, going to F&P, and now at IMU, did you feel your postgraduate education success was respected in those industries? Uh, yes, like, <laughs> I think, um, Um, I think at F&P it's quite a large company and there's a lot of people who have got a kind of a background of um, mechanical and software and hardware en electronic engineers and a lot of and it's not typical for them to do a PhD and so after my PhD I, um, I went and interviewed there and luckily through the ABI I knew um, one of the people who was interviewing me, uh, Rob. Um, and yeah, like they were open to me going through, and I basically had to redo my PhD defense as, a, as an interview for about an hour. And I went through like all three of the like um, main segments of the PhD and had to go through all that all. And it was, they were doing it to test like how I thought about things and, and whether the PhD had informed how I thought about things. And basically it completely changed how I thought about things by doing that kind of four years of, of um, developing that knowledge and, and being really critical of myself and my work. So. Um, I think that was really well respected in the interview process. So if you can get into a situation where they understand what a PhD is and know how to ask the right questions and where you would be applied, then that's ideal if you want to move in an industry. Um, and then it, I measure you, um, again, because the guy who was the boss was also an API contact. Um, so uh, when I talked to Mark about how I would contribute towards what they were doing, um, I was able to talk at that technical level and then he was able to challenge me on what my experience was and what I'd learned and he kind of knew how I thought so he knew that how that would work within their kind of environment but I find that yeah in industry you've, you've got to make a bit of a case for why thinking at thinking to the level of detail that you want to as a PhD graduate why thinking to that level is going to be like make profit or add to the success of their product so if you can think about how to present that in a way and demonstrate how that has helped some, a product be successful, then you're kind of like halfway to convincing them to hire you. Thank you, Reese. Another question. Yeah, I don't really mean to be a heretic or controversial, but um, <laughs> I, I, would, I would like to uh, put forward the, uh, the idea that, you know, perhaps um, not everything is perfect in the ABI. Sorry, Peter. Um, there, you know, there are possibly some, uh, some problems that uh, get in the way of uh, you achieving, each of you achieving success, and more generally as a, an institute. Uh, um, what are those problems and um, um, how do you think we should uh, um, resolve them, both you know, now and uh, you know, the problems that uh, uh, we anticipate in the, in the near future? And that's not just running out of milk on a Monday morning. <laughs> try, try to aim higher, but higher, yeah. I, I don't want to touch that one. <laughs> 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 
Peter on one side and Mary on the other side of me. Yeah, I feel very uncomfortable right now. <laughs> oh, what can I get away with saying? Um, I don't know. I, I still think the ABI is a wonderful place, like, at the core of it. I really do. Like, I, le I legitimately do. I love the ABI. That's why I'm still here. Um, what are the problems? Yeah. Yeah, maybe you should answer your own question. Um, now, so I think one that I'm increasingly dealing with is the administrative burden. Um, and even at my career stage, where I don't know, early career, mid career, whatever you want to define me, I'm becoming exceedingly bogged down in administration. Um, filling out forms, dealing with emails. I'll use this as a soapbox. Please don't click reply all to any email that has ABI Institute on it. Like, it's just inappropriate. But. Yes. Yeah, so thank you. This is my public service announcement. <laughs> but just those little details, I mean, and we all deal with it. We're all so busy. And I think going back to Jagir's comment, like, family's really important to me. And I guess linking that in with Simon's comment, like, one of my biggest failures in life is I missed my granddad's funeral. Like, I didn't go back. It was in the States. I would have had to take a week off. I just, I didn't do it. And at the time, I didn't think... I didn't think it was a big deal, but like I absolutely regret that. Um, and so I think that's real key. And, and so I guess, I don't know where I'm going with this, but the more administration and all of these burdens we have, we're so time constricted that what happens is it pulls us away from those other things that are real important in life. And so I think the more that we can ease that, the better. Um, and I think we're getting there. Like we've seen a lot of, of that being done at the ABI. So I guess the challenge is to try and do more. Geez, Paul. Not everybody's collegial. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's certainly administration. I suppose we just kind of accumulate it and we accept that that's part of what we do. Um, I would say, though, that uh, in the ABI, we're actually pretty bloody lucky. You know, if, we, if you were sitting in a faculty dealing with your teaching and all of the administration that goes along with that, as well as trying to do your, your research and, and so forth. That's, uh, from my understanding, <laughs> um, extremely challenging. So, um, you know, ABI is trying to do the best um, with always limited resources to support staff. Um, yeah, I accept, sure, we can do things better, Paul. Um, more a question of what you saw as the mm. barriers to, uh, to, to success and, and how they... Barriers are. to success. Barriers to success within the ABI. Yes. <laughs> I think probably one of the challenges remains in terms of the length of our employment contract, for instance. Um, and and that, that, that is a real challenge because our, our money comes in blobs. And um, a lot of our employment contracts are in blobs. And you know, I'm in touch with Carmen because my salary went down. I don't know why. And they're looking at it. And I don't, but you know, they'll, they'll sort it out. But it'll be to do with grants expiring, etc. And all these things change. That's certainly only one of the weird I'll, things about our place. I'll take that because I'm already on the soapbox about the reply all thing. Uh, <laughs> I think that's absolutely a challenge for me is um, being on a fixed term contract indefinitely. Um, I'm always aware of when I'm unemployed. 
and I always have a date when I'm unemployed, and it's really challenging. Um, so yeah, I think that's a, a huge challenge, and it's quite well, unique at the hand, ABI our, as well. Some of our startup community might also have similar anxieties about yeah. their runway and. <laughs> It's not unique. I just, so I just need to jump in there with this one. Um, that, uh, that part of the reason in terms of fixed term contracts is of course the financial risk to ABI. We can't underwrite everybody but we can in some situations. There's also an employment risk. Um, so we can't, you know, you, any fixed term contract needs to be clearly justified. Why is somebody on a fixed-term contract? Why are they not on a permanent position? Um, so if somebody, if we're saying, well, there's two years of funding here, but we'll fund them on a, a four-year contract, it's like, well, what's the justification for that? So we have to be really careful um, that we don't get ourselves into lots of trouble. But, yeah, I, I, I feel your pain. I was there once upon a time. Um, on that note, we're going to have to close the session. Oh, guys. no, so they, they might have also. A quick comment. I'm in trouble. My quick comment. My quick comment would be that um, I don't know if things have changed. It's been four years since I've been at so. But like, if if you can, as as it grows and gets bigger, and I experienced a lot of that when I was doing my PhD and before that, then the gap between the people who are just starting out and the people who are like making decisions at the top gets broader and gets more. There's more of a distance. And so if you think about ways in which the structure of the ABI can enable the concerns at the bottom to flow up to the top and then be represented, especially if you're trying to get the uni to change their structures as well, then uh, that would be the easiest way to bring that through. But yeah, you have to be quite critical about how you can get that feedback through because otherwise people can just feel like they're doing grunt work and they're not part of a community and that feeds into how we make the most of being multicultural and, and how we make the best decisions for the institute. I was going to say uh, parking and the elevators, <laughs> but on a more serious note, the showers. The showers. The showers yeah. <laughs> you say it will all be solved by a new building. <laughs> <laughs> um, but on a more serious note, um, I actually forgot what I was going to say. So, all <laughs> oh, right, no, no, the um, ABI has grown so much over the last few years, right? Um, and there's more and more new faces. And I think there's a lot of potential that can be tapped into by us, um, everyone networking with each other. Make sure you know every face at the ABI. Because I remember when I was doing my PhD, like two years in, I felt like I knew everyone. I might not have actually known everyone, but I felt like I did. Um, and today, actually, I'm sorry, I don't know a lot of you. <laughs> And so, you know, ABI is trying very hard to solve that problem, and we have the social committee, like, running events, and um, we, we do get a lot of involvement in the social committee, but it tends to be the same people that always show up. So if you're new or you haven't joined one of our events, you should do it, and I think um, you'll get to know a lot more people. Closing comments, too. Closing comments. Okay, I've got two. One, maybe dishwasher training should be part of induction. <laughs> and two, not, so, not really related, but just to finish off, I think whatever you're doing, make time for your family, your loved ones, those you care about. Yeah. To find out more, visit our website www.abi.auckland.ac.nz